just a young preacher. In fact, it was the first church that I had the privilege of preaching for. And I hadn't been there but a few weeks, and I found myself smack dab in what I would later know as the worship wars. And it started like this. So right before one Sunday service began, my worship leader came up to me with what he thought was a great idea, and after he shared the idea with me, I thought it was simple, it would be helpful, it would focus our minds, and the idea was this. He said, Kevin, this Sunday, how about as we pass the elements, as we, we will have prayer, and then we'll pass the fruit of the vine, we'll pass the bread, and, and as, as we're passing these elements, I'll lead us in a, in a meditative song. I'll lead us in a song that will draw our minds to the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. I mean, it'll be great. And I thought, sounds great to me. And so sure enough, you know, he we have communion we're you know we have the prayer and as we're passing the the basket he begins leading us in a in a song and i thought that that sunday morning it was especially meaningful i thought time around the table was just just a wonderful time as we focused our minds as we sang these songs to god as we passed the the first the bread and then a few moments later as we passed the trays to take communion well there was a former elder who happened to be in attendance that morning and when he witnessed that in his mind it was nothing short of heresy he couldn't believe what was transpiring now that we gotten this new young preacher and so he was really upset about how we were mixing the elements of worship I didn't realize there was a law like that in scripture but I came to realize a lot of people felt like there was that law it was in the Bible. We just couldn't find it in the Bible. And so he was upset about it. And so I found myself in an elders meeting the, the next Monday night with my current elders and my former elder, and there was much consternation. There was a lot of worry and a lot of fear about where we were headed and what had transpired that previous Sunday morning because we had the audacity to sing a song while we pass the bread and while we pass the collection or while we pass the fruit of the vine I've since come to realize in these 30 plus years of ministry that people have very very strong opinions about what is good and right and appropriate when it comes to worship now, if you're a guest with us today, that analogy probably sounds, or that story probably sounds silly to you. It's kind of odd, kind of strange that, that people would get upset over that. And yet, you, you know, as church people, from time to time, we, we get all upset and worried and nervous about what transpires during this hour. Now, we need to be clear, don't we? There's some things we can do related to worship in an assembly that God does not like one bit. And God is clear about it. He's so clear about it that he tells us in his word. For instance, God speaking through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 1 says this, The multitudes of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. 
new moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts, your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you're offering many prayers, I am not listening. Now, you don't have to have a Ph.D. in the Old Testament to know, as you read Isaiah chapter 1, that something was transpiring among the people of God, at least in the Old Testament, that God wasn't happy about one little bit. In fact, he calls their assemblies worthless. Worthless. And then he uses such strong language. He says, I hate them. God hates their assemblies? I don't want to be a part of assembly like that. I don't want to plan a worship service that God says this about. And then he says, he's so upset with what's transpiring as they gather together to worship. He's so concerned that he says, though you lift up your prayers, I'm not listening. I'm not going to hear what you're praying about. And so he tells them down in verse 17 exactly what he wants, Isaiah 1. He says, learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. You see, at that, this time they were going to the temple. They were going through the motions of worship. But they were still unconcerned for the poor. They had little interest in the widows. They thought little about orphans. You see, what they did in worship had little effect on how they lived. They could come, they could have their tickets punched and live the same old corrupt lives. I think I would say it like this. Sunday had no connection to Monday. Now, I think we need to be very careful here as well. It's easy, isn't it, to gather in a room just like this and to sing such beautiful music, to sing songs like Amazing Grace, How Sweet, the sound that that saved a wretch like me. And yet, if we're not careful, we're somehow unable to forgive that person who wronged us this week. We can receive grace. We can accept grace. And yet, sometimes, we have a hard time extending grace. Or we gather around a table, and we think about how God has welcomed us, how the Lord has has received us. And if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we can form a, a tight, little exclusive club and be very unwelcoming to others, especially those who are different than we are. Or we sing, all to Jesus I surrender. We sing that song and then the collection plate comes by and we experience the Passover. You know what I'm talking about? It just passes right on over. A little concerned about giving so that we might be a blessing to commune. Or if the preacher talks too often or too much about giving, we get real nervous and upset about him. You see, if we're going to call it worship on Sunday, it's got to have a close relationship to what we do and how we live on Monday. What we do in here should have a profound impact on how we live out there. Worship. Our encounter with God should affect how we treat our neighbors, how we run our businesses, how we see others, how we parent our children, how we love our husbands, and how we love our wives. It's fascinating when you come to the New Testament 
to see how the Apostle Paul describes or defines worship. I love that classic passage. It's Romans chapter 12. And for 11 chapters, he has described the grace of God. He's helped us to understand the gospel of God. And then he comes to Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, and he says these words, Therefore I urge you, in view of God's mercy. What is God's mercy? It's what he's talked about for 11 chapters. I urge you, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And then he says, this is your true and proper worship. Paul, how do you define worship? What is worship to you? What is true and proper worship? It's not bringing sacrifices and putting them on the altar. Oh no, now it's, it's we get on the altar. We get on that altar and make ourselves a sacrifice. We are an offering to God. What Paul is saying, it's, it's pretty challenging and radical. He says all of life is worship. I realize we often narrow worship to this hour. And we get really upset with what goes on during this hour. But as Paul talks about worship, he's describing all of life as an offering to God. All of life is a worship to God. Now, don't hear me say, therefore, since all of life is worship, this hour on Sunday is not significant or not important. It is deeply significant, and it is very important. My point is there must be a tight connection between Sunday and Monday. Just as how we worship on Sunday should impact how we live on Monday, how we live on Monday should, in a sense, prepare us to worship on Sunday. I have this sense that a lot of times we struggle with worship because we're really not thinking a lot about God through the week. We kind of shift into another gear and we're all about our jobs or our families or whatever else, our, our, our uh, you know, other pursuits. We're so focused on that, little thought for God, and then we're not really ready to come on Sunday morning and offer Him everything. So worship to us seems flat, and we kind of are indifferent about it because of what we've done Monday through Saturday. The Hebrew writer was writing to a church that was really struggling. They were tired, and they were discouraged, these were Hebrew Christians who were on the verge of going back to the old system, going back to the old way. Their, their knees were weak, their arms were drooping. That's how, that's how the Hebrew writer describes them. This past Wednesday night, we had Joe Beam, and in that last um, gathering, Joe Beam just spent some time answering questions. And one of the questions that one of us asked was, so what do you see is... The biggest challenge we face as, as a church, maybe even make it more broad, as a movement. I don't know if you agree with his answer, but I found his answer interesting. He said, our biggest challenge is indifference, is apathy. And that's exactly, I think, what the Hebrew writer is concerned with. He's writing to an apathetic church. He's writing to an indifferent church. He's writing to a church that's, that's giving up. And so that's why he says these words in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 that you'll find very familiar because if you grew up in church, you heard these verses a lot. The Hebrew writer says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another 
all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, older translations render that last phrase, don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Apathy, indifference was permeating this church. As a result, they weren't interested in the assembly. They weren't interested in gathering together. And there are all sorts of reasons why well, we must to make it a priority in our spiritual lives to make corporate worship very important to us. The most obvious one is that it's a time when God is praised. You see, worship is ultimately about God. And the question isn't, will we worship? But rather, what? Or better, whom will we worship? If you choose not to worship God, if you choose to be apathetic about an assembly, if you choose to ignore the ultimate reality, understand there will be other, other interests that will fill this void in your life, and yet you will ultimately find they don't in the end satisfy. Your life will be filled with all kinds of idols. It's a misnomer to say only church people worship. Everyone worships. We were created to worship. If we don't worship God, we'll worship something or someone. We will worship some kind of an idol. I like how Tim Keller a lot of times puts things in very simple ways that help me understand things. And Keller defined idolatry in this way. He says idolatry is when lesser things become ultimate things. Lesser things become ultimate things. When we make it a priority to be here, when this gathering is important to us, we're saying God is ultimate. God is first in my life. And yet we're living during a time when we have more disposable wealth than any other time. We're more active and busy. We travel. We can do anything we wish to do. And if we're not careful, lesser things become ultimate things. And Keller would describe that as idolatry. Sunday is important because God is praised, but, but it's also important because you are encouraged. Did you notice the Hebrew writer said, let us spur one another on toward love and good deeds. We cannot live the Christian life alone. We need one another. We need to be spurred on. You see, my goal as I think about what we do on Sunday mornings. My goal is that you will be so inspired that not only will you say, I got to come back, I got to come back with a friend. These gatherings should inspire us, should spur us on, should, should move us such that we're involved in a life of good works and good deeds. The assembly is significant. Gathering on Sunday is important because God is worshiped. It is ultimately about worship, ultimately about God, worship is. You will be encouraged. But the other thing is, then you also will be an encouragement to others. When I gather in this assembly and I look around at you, you encourage me. When I look around and I see people who are engaged, I see people who are singing, I see people who are tracking with the sermon, I see people who are thinking as, as we're gathering around a table. When I look around and see all of that, I, I'm, I'm encouraged. But can I just tell you the other on the other hand, it's also extremely discouraging 
when we're kind of indifferent about the whole thing. We kind of show up when we can. We sort of fit it in around other things. And then we kind of show up here. We kind of drag in. We're sleepy. We're tired. We're sort of looking down. That is incredibly discouraging. But you can be an encouragement. You, you yourself, can spur other people on toward love and good deeds by how you approach God in worship. You see, God loves it when we gather in this place. We worship Him with our whole heart. And understand, when we leave this place, we continue worshiping Him all week by the distinctive lives we lead. Not not the perfect lives. None of us can do that. But by this distinctive, Christ-honoring, Christ-focused lives that we lead. This morning, we've discovered the kind of worship God hates. It's, it's worship that's disconnected from life. It's, it's ultimately meaningless. We've seen the kind of worship that God loves. It's when Sunday is connected to Monday, and Monday influences Sunday. And now for just a moment, let me talk for a second about the kind of worshiper God seeks. I don't know if you've thought about that, but, but God seeks a kind of of worshiper and it's the person we're going to be introduced to in John chapter 4 now I've always loved the contrast in in John's gospel between John 3 and John 4 because in John 3 it is a story about a man by the name of Nicodemus he's this religious man he's this leader and he comes to Jesus at night he's got some questions though he's a religious man he's empty I love the contrast with John 4 because in John 4 it's the story of this this woman and it's during the day. It's, it's at noon. It's not at night. And she's not seeking Jesus as much as Jesus seeks her. Jesus begins this conversation with her. Both of them, both this religious man and both this, this immoral woman, both of these people, the common feature is they have this deep need for Jesus. They're empty, and they both realize it. And so let's imagine the scene. Jesus, he's sitting by the well. And he looks up and he sees this woman and she's on her way by herself. And and I've got this thought in my mind that that she's coming by herself. She she didn't come to get water in the morning or in the evening, in the cool of the day. No, she's she's coming at noon. She knows this is the time when nobody's going to be there. She's coming alone because she wants to be alone. And she comes near that well, she sees Jesus. I don't know how you see this woman in John 4. But I see her as, as tired and lonely. She knows she's failed. She understands the heartache of loss. She, she's tried all her life to make things right, to do things right, and, and it just hasn't worked out that way for her. She She thinks back on her wedding day, and oh, her wedding day was wonderful. Her her wedding day was perfect. It was as she'd always dreamed. But after the wedding day came the marriage, and the marriage wasn't what she thought it would be, and it ultimately ends in divorce. But she's drawn to another man, and, and she enters into a second marriage. But some of the same mistakes that were made in the first marriage were made in the second marriage, and that marriage ends in divorce, and then there's the third, and then there's the fourth. All in all, we find out this woman, she's, she's been married five times. We don't, and they've all ended, 
the marriage didn't last in any of the relationship. We, we don't know. Maybe a couple of the men died. Either way, here's a woman who understands loss and understands defeat. And now she's given up on marriage altogether, and the person that she's living with, well, that person didn't even do her the honor of marrying her, and now she's, she's coming to this well. And so Jesus sees her, and Jesus begins this dialogue with her. And as Jesus looks at her, he knows she's thirsty, but her thirst is more than just a need for water. And so as Jesus begins talking with her, he, he begins describing some water that, that she doesn't really know anything about. And Jesus says, if you receive this water that I, that I offer you, you'll never thirst again. That's amazing. I can have a water and, and I'll be that, that satisfied, never thirst again. In fact, he says, this water that I'm describing, it will, it will well up in you. It will gush out of you to eternal life. Oh, and she des- desires that water. We all would. And then Jesus looks at her, and what he says next, it stops the conversation right here for just a moment. She's stunned. Jesus says, well, well go call your husband and come on back. she says I have no husband Jesus says you're right you're right in saying you have no husband you've had five husbands and the man you're with right now you're not even married to and she's feeling very uncomfortable at this moment. This person she's sitting next to having a conversation, he knows too much about her life, and so she does what we often do. She, she shifts the conversation. She shifts to the, the conversation to worship, and the amazing thing is that's, that was her deepest need. Her deepest need was to worship and adore Almighty God. And she, she has questions about, about the place of worship, kind of peripheral matters, and, and Jesus says now worship is not about a place, but it, now it's about a person. And she wants to talk about the temple, and Jesus tells her about how thou, the, or Jesus earlier had said that in fact he was the temple. He was the place where God dwells. And then Jesus says something to her that I've grappled with all week. And I guess I've, I've read this verse over and over in my life, and I'm, I'm not sure I've really understood it maybe until this, until this, this week. Jesus looks at her and he says, a time is coming and has now come. It's now come. See, I'm standing in front of you. The time has now come. When true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. And notice this next phrase. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit and His worshipers must worship Him in the Spirit and in truth. It's interesting in this passage of Scripture that now God is the seeker. We often think of ourselves as seekers, or maybe the unchurched as seekers. God is the seeker. God is seeking a certain kind of person who will worship in the Spirit and in truth. And I wonder, what does that mean? What does it mean to worship in in the Spirit? Now, if you have a Bible open, if you're looking at an NIV, you'll notice that the translators of the NIV make an interpretive move. You see, in the Bible, there's no, in the original language, there's no punctuation, there's no capitalization. But in the NIV, it says, worship in the Spirit, and the Spirit is capitalized. What are they saying? They are saying, God is seeking, Jesus is seeking those who worship 
in the Holy Spirit. Not who have a certain attitude, not who have a, have a certain, you know, a passion. No, he, he's seeking a person who worships in the Holy Spirit. I think the NIV's right. True worship comes from within us as our spirits are made alive and sensitive and are quickened by the Holy Spirit of God. God's Spirit ignites and energizes our spirit as we respond to Him in worship. God is seeking men and women who worship in the Spirit and who worship in truth. Jesus, in John's Gospel, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, in the Gospel, would later describe the Holy Spirit as the, Holy, as the Spirit of truth. Understand, when the Holy Spirit is our worship leader... Our whole being will adore and worship Jesus. And so what does that look like? That looks like we're engaged in worship. You see, worship is not a passive thing. If we're not careful, we're we're tricked into thinking that it is. And so we come into this room, and we get real comfy and cozy, and we sit down in padded chairs, and we think it's it's passive. And I'm just going to sit there, and I'm going to watch the entertainment on the stage. I'm going to watch Curry kind of do his thing. I'm going to watch the preacher do his thing. We get real passive. But, But worship is not passive. When the Holy Spirit, we worship in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit moves in our heart, and then suddenly we're engaged. And what does that engagement look like? looks like mouths that are opened with praise it's look it looks like men and women who aren't mumbling words but are 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 singing from their toes because they understand these songs they're singing you're not singing to others ultimately ultimately we're singing to jesus ultimately we're singing to god if there's a person who's who's watching and listening it's it's god what will it look like it looks like We worship with our minds as we think, as we ponder, as the sermon is presented or as scripture is read or as someone speaks about the significance of the supper when we gather up here. With our hearts, we feel and are moved. With our hands and feet, we're ready to to move out after a worship service because we understand this does not end. Worship does not end. It keeps moving on as we move out into our schools and into our to our jobs, to our places of work. It moves, our hands are moved, our lips are moved. When we worship like this, like the woman at the well, she needed that. Her her soul was parched. She needed to worship God. When we do, then suddenly we find ourselves are satisfied in the deepest place. Someone said, love that stoops down is grace. And love that reaches up is worship. God in Jesus stooped down and now our response to his initiative is to reach up in worship. I'll never forget, I love these special moments when our three boys were little bitty and I would come home from work and the door would open, they they would hear the door open, they would come running to meet me and when they were little bitty they would have that toothless grin and the first thing that would happen is their arms would reach up their arms would reach up to their daddy what do you think I did oh it made my day I reached down I picked up those those little children I hugged them and I loved them 
And I can't help but think that metaphor, that image is, is good for us. That's what we do. We come into this place on the first day of the week. We've had a hard week, maybe. We've been busy, and maybe some of us have experienced some discouragement, and we're a little tired, but we come into this place, and what are we doing? We're reaching up with our hands to God. Our Father has stooped down to us. We're reaching up to God, and as we do, He picks us up in His arms, and we feel a closeness and an intimacy in that gathering. And so each week as we gather, we experience the fullness of God. We once again see the grace and experience the grace of Jesus. We gather around that table, we're reminded of the grace of Jesus. We hear the gospel proclaimed and our hearts are quickened by the Spirit because we understand and reminded again of the incredible love of God. And as we're gathering together, with one another, we experience the sweet fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, I'm wondering, I'm, I'm wondering if you're like that woman who felt parched, who felt alone. Here's the good news I have for you. This morning, God is seeking you. God has stooped down to reach to you. And our response is to reach up to him.